Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Kai, DR, and Miles talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. And then I sit down and talk to Valerie Jarrett to discuss Civic Nation's Made to Serve initiative for expanding vaccine access. And you heard me say that Miles is joining us. Miles is Miles Johnson. He's an incredible writer, cultural critic, and thinker, helping us understand the way that popular culture impacts the way that we understand systems, structures, and societal change. He'll be joining us for a set of episodes. We think you'll love him. We learn so much every time we talk to Miles. And now you'll get to hear him more. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on the Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me at Rapture on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. This is DeRay at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So we spend a lot of time talking about black excellence, but we're going to spend a moment to talk about white failure today. (laughs) (laughs) Diara and the leader. Representation matters. You know, we want to be equitable here on Pod Save the People. So we thought we would talk about some of the goings ons of white women in particular, namely Elizabeth Holmes, who... You know, she there was a documentary on her. Now she's in court. It's literally the United States of America versus Elizabeth Holmes, where she is charged with frauds, conspiracies, wired fraud, all, all types of things. But namely, she was able to get her company to be valued at $9 billion and didn't have not near one piece of technology <laughs> that worked. And her attorney said, and I love this, failure isn't a crime. Okay. All right, white people. But lying, lying is a crime. Lying is a crime. Let me just be very clear about it. And she lied. She lied like a whole entire rug. She lied about the technology. She lied about the value of her company. She lied about who she was. She lied about everything. That is a crime. That's why she's on trial right now. Well, there you have it. There you have it. I think the other, I didn't recall her from four years of the Trump administration, but Farah something or other, who's going on The View. Alyssa Farah. Alyssa Farah, who is, who is a liar Farah, who is going on The View tomorrow. She purports to be director of communications during the administration for the White House. I don't recall that, but I also worked on a campaign with a lot of people who made up titles for themselves after the campaign was over as well. So, <laughs> But I'm going to kick it to Miles because I know that Miles is a, a fan of The View, so I feel like you are the expert here. And Elizabeth Holmes. To- <laughs> okay, we, words do mean things. <laughs> I'm a fan of Beyonce. I'm an observer of Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> yes, Miles. Correct the people. Correct. I am a fan of The View. I think it's just been something that me and my mother will always watch, that and Oprah together. And I think growing up seeing 
women argue and discuss and debate around topics was is just always good. But what I understood was, oh, wow, like during the whole Trump administration, I remember Joy being so passionate about not forgetting this moment and not letting this happen again and not letting this be swept under the rug, you know, a la maybe like Bush and uh, not, like 9-11, his administration, sometimes we kind of can like sugarcoat like what he actually did and forget about it. And they were really passionate about not letting it happen. And now... With this new with this new host, they're kind of being complicit in the normalization of that era. That feels a little bit um, dishonest, but maybe that's just Hollywood. But it feels a little dishonest, and it kind of it dis- disappoints me. I don't have super high expectations for anybody who is on television, but even my low expectations were hurt <laughs> with, with that choice. And what about Elizabeth Holmes? Um, Elizabeth Holmes. So I'm a fan. Uh, see, you got me saying it. You got me lying on myself. <laughs> the devil is busy. Um, <laughs> got my tongue. Uh, <laughs> but no, I was really fascinated with Elizabeth Holmes and Anna Delvey because they were these people. Because during this time, I was very interested in how all of culture was really big into scamming. So Joanne Prada was big, who was like this, like, viral Instagram Twitter sensation who really like makes jokes about stealing money and about scamming people. And then you had Elizabeth um, Holmes and Anna Delvey actually doing it actively. And then Joanne Prada used to play a black woman who was pretending to be a white woman in order to get wealth, in order to in order to make these scams happen. And then, just in case you thought Joanne Prada was actually being ridiculous and too absurdist, here are two white women actually utilizing just their whiteness in order to gain wealth and just be able to myth build in this in the structure of their story, the the base of their story of why they should get these things is whiteness. So no matter what the Steve Jobs t-shirts or turtlenecks did or what Anna Delvey's, you know, designer things that she still does the the base of what made it believable was the whiteness was the whiteness and i thought that was really interesting to be able to wake up and say oh i'm gonna be a superstar very pulse warhol that's what he did he was like oh, i'm just gonna take the brillo i'm gonna take the tomato soup cans and we're gonna call it art and i'm not gonna actually do that much stuff and and we're gonna see how far i can take this but the thought that i was um getting out was here we are again somebody scamming the system finding fame and popularity through scamming the system using the kind of absurdity of like white culture and exclusivity in order to to do it and kind of playing into it in order to get real money from it and i find i find that fascinating well that's good welcome miles welcome <laughs> i love it my news is about this badass black woman in montgomery alabama but we'll get to her in a second um, in Montgomery, there is a statue in tribute to J. Marion Sims, who is considered by lots of people to be the father of modern gynecology. Dr. Sims performed experimental surgeries on approximately 10 enslaved black women in the 1840s without their consent and without anesthesia. Let me say that again. He performed experimental surgeries on 10 enslaved black women without their consent and without anesthesia. Jesus. He invited other surgeons to watch. He called his ramshackle place the Negro Hospital. And he used these black women as guinea pigs. One woman, Anarka, um, he performed over 30 surgeries on her alone. And there are statues of him in many places. In fact, there was one in Central Park that was removed in 2018, thanks to protesters. But that won't happen in Montgomery, Alabama, because 
the governor of Alabama, Governor Kay Ivey, who is a Republican, um, introduced legislation, passed legislation, barring monument removal if they've been on public property for more than 40 years. And as you can imagine, um, Dr. Sims's statue has been on the public property for more than 40 years, so he's not going anywhere. Um, and there is a black woman, um, a 50-year-old black woman, go 50, 50 is the new fly, and her name is Michelle Browder. She is a native of, I guess she was born in Denver, but her family is from Montgomery. In fact, she comes from a pretty esteemed family in Montgomery, and she is a native daughter, so she's a native daughter of Alabama, and she was kind of grappling with this history and seeing this statue when she knew the truth of what Dr. J. Marion Sims has do- had done. She runs a tour company that um, helps people face the truth of the stuff that has happened in Montgomery from lynchings to the public slave square, etc., and she decided to change the narrative by creating a counter monument. This is such a brilliant idea um, called the Mothers of Gynecology. And this is a statue that celebrates the three of the women that Dr. Sims uh, experimented on, Anarka, Lucy and Betsy. And she says the way these women are portrayed is they're proud and defiant. The size of Dr. Sims' statue is eight feet. The size of the women is double (laughs) Dr. Sims. And she says, never again will anyone look down on these women. I just want to read to you from the article that describes what these women look like. Anarka has a gaping hole through her midsection. Her womb stands alone nearby, made of gold mesh and containing objects that would make any woman shudder in this context. Needles, medical instruments, scissors, cut glass, anything sharp, any object that looks like it could harm you, said Deborah Shedrick, a Montgomery artist recruited by Browder to be the womb maker. I wanted you to experience the physical pain, the emotional pain, the spiritual pain. And these women are adorned in jewelry that are, uh, one has a crown of speculums. And if you're a woman, you are very familiar with the speculum. It is the tool that the gynecologist uses to examine you um, in your vaginal cavity. It's not so cool. The artists decorated these women with many of the instruments that they were tortured with. And they're creating a whole new narrative around this. And Michelle Browder, in addition to her tour company, is actually using this piece of property to open into a two-block campus. um, And she has plans to do a bunch of other things. And so I brought this to um, the pod because she's a 50-year-old black woman with red cat glasses who decided that she wasn't going to take this thing the way it was honoring J. Marion Sims, even if the governor decided that she wasn't going to move the the monument. She built her own monument to the people who matter um, in a way that matters to us. And so I thought when folks go to Montgomery to see lots of different things, including um, the lynching museum, um, you need to make a stop at the Mothers of Gynecology statue that celebrates these women who literally gave their lives um, so that women could have medical care in America. That's my deal. So I didn't realize how little I knew about J. Marion Sims. I'd heard this story before. Like I, I knew that uh, that the origin of gynecology was suspect at best, but I didn't know the details. And then, so thanks for bringing it, Kaya. It was really wild. He wrote a book called The Story of My Life, And in the book, he writes, quote, there was never a time that I could not at any day have had a subject for operation. 
He goes on to note that this was the most, quote, memorable time of his life when he was operating on uh, enslaved women. He didn't use anesthesia on black women because he believed that black women didn't feel pain. Once this process to fix the fistula was uh, perfected, he did start doing the procedure on white women. And lo and behold, he started using anesthesia on white women. It just sort of blew my mind because the way that white people have retold the story, the way that he even tells the story is like he was doing this incredible service. People were clamoring to be operated on by him. But did they have agency? No. Right. Could they choose? No. And it took several operations for him, several people's bodies. He essentially played with and experimented with before he even got this to a place where like it worked. And like Kaya said, it was 30 operations on one woman who was 17 years old, 17 years old before he finally perfected it. She was a child, 17 years old. I mean, that is sort of wild. And when you read about the history of him is that he actually only went to medical school. This is also fascinating. This was before medical school was like what it is today. So he took a three month course and studied for a year at Jefferson Medical College before he opened his own practice. And he specialized in implantations. That was like his thing. So he wasn't sort of doing work in communities. He was the person who was doing them on slave plantations. And if the patient's owners provided clothing and paid taxes, he effectively took temporary ownership of the women until the treatment was completed. You cannot convince me in any capacity this was consent. Of course it wasn't consent. I mean, and and that continues, right? All of the things that from, you know, current healthcare professionals not believing that black women feel pain. Didn't we do that in uh, a while ago on the pod? I mean, these are the legacies or them believing that they can do anything with black women's bodies. They took Henrietta Lacks cells and did all kinds of things with them, right? Like the, to Diara's point, like this stuff continues straight through to today. Yeah, I was actually going to mention um, Henrietta Lacks because that's where my mind first went. And even, I'm always interested in how these moments continue to inform our um, current day moments. When we really sit down and have, a, as, as specifically as a Black community, have intra-communal conversation around either like anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitancy and stuff, it's really easy to kind of pick teams like in sports. But there really is some really good baked in hesitancy around the medical industry. And I think that if this moment can do anything for us is to show that, oh, the medical industry is just as much about culture and people and spirits as much as it's about getting somebody from sick to health or maintaining health. And there has been some deep sins that have happened in the medical industry that there needs to be a concerted effort when there's not a global crisis to mend those things with people. Because history is filled with these stories where Black people's bodies were not safe, you know? And, and Black people's bodies were just seen as just simply um, those bodies. And I think that we're still seeing manifestations of that hesitancy that it's keeping our own community unsafe during the global crisis and keeping other people unsafe. And when there's not a global crisis happening, there needs to be an effort to mend those sins. And I'm kind of using sins purposefully because to me it feels like the ultimate evil 
to take somebody's consent, to harm them, to, to torture them, you know, and then to, and to enact those modes of violence on somebody. That changes somebody's whole trajectory of their life. When I think about Margaret Garner, when I think about anybody from Margaret Garner to Henry Lacks, I just think about the torturous places that specifically black women have to have gone through. And I just can't see how the medical industry can think that it does not need to do something about it. It does not need to do something to make black people, specifically black women, trust them. That should be huge. That should be really important. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Party of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. 
The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. My news is about the first two black women to be inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. First of all, when I saw this title, I was like, how can this be? Black women are inventing things every moment of the day. But <laughs> we'll, leave, we'll leave that somewhere yeah. else. So engineer Marion Croak and the late ophthalmologist Patricia Bass. So these are the incredible, brilliant sisters that are being inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. So just a little bit on the National Inventors Hall of Fame. I first came to know about this because I have a distant uncle whose name is Fred Jones from Minneapolis, Minnesota, who invented the first portable air conditioner that then went on trucks. So us little black kids always grew up knowing about Fred Jones and we would get in trouble because we would take toasters apart and stuff and try to invent stuff. All that to say, this is incredibly important for black children to know about these inventors, right? What we know is that in terms of like the numbers of black folks that are getting inducted, so these are the first two black women, there are 48 female inductees overall and 30 black inductees total. And in terms of who these women are and what they did, so Patricia Bath, who's an ophthalmologist, so she's the first black female physician to receive a medical patent. She's the first black woman to complete a residency in ophthalmology at NYU the first woman to chair an ophthalmology residency program in the United States. She invented, I'm going to mispronounce this, the laser FACO, um, a minimally invasive device and technique that performs steps of cataract removal. This article, like, read it through, because first of all, she just has so many accolades, like, I can just spend 30 minutes on that. But the other thing that she realized as an ophthalmologist is that there were, you know, just all kinds of inequities when it came to ophthalmology in black communities. And she noticed, so she worked in both Harlem Hospital and she worked at Columbia Hospital. She noticed at Harlem Hospital that black folks were becoming blind more so than at Columbia, where the white folks were. And so she also was an activist and did a ton of things in the community in terms of trying to get black folks access to ophthalmology. Now, Marion Croak, so she currently leads Google's Research Center for Responsible AI and Human-Centered Technology. Now, everyone else on this line is smarter than I am, but it seems to me that Marion Croak invented the Zoom. <laughs> Her work focuses on converting okay. voice data into digital signals that can be transmitted over the internet rather than through phone lines. Don't that sound like talking on the internet? Isn't that the VOIP stuff, right? Like, that is so VOIP, that you can yeah. make calls using your internet signal. It ain't Zoom, but it's VOIP. <laughs> She's smart. Go ahead. <laughs> so she also, she and her team at Google created a text to donate system, and it was for charitable donations. So they raised $130,000 during Hurricane Katrina, $43 million after Haiti's devastating um, 2010 earthquake. I just wanted to share that because I think what's the common thread to both of these incredible black women is that they were experts in their fields. They had accolade after accolade and made time for community. 
So it just dawned on me. I'm like, I wonder if we did a survey across all of the people that have been, you know, kind of inducted into this National Inventors Hall of Fame. Who are the folks that, with their brilliance, are actually tapping into communities and trying to make difference there? I don't know. I, that, it just, it just, I just feel like it's so kind of intrinsic for black women to do the thing and then also to bring everyone along with them. So I just wanted to bring these women to the pod because I just thought this was fabulous. So I hope y'all did too. Now, let me tell you, the thing that this made me think of is I was insulted, actually, at this being such a pioneering moment around black people. Like, we've been inventing, we made this whole country. How, how hey, we, how on. we, how? Tell me how, right? So that made me go to look, and it made me realize and, like, find the, the history of the patent and how we weren't even whole people when the patent system was made. So it's there were, part, like, we, we were structurally barred from the Patent Act and all these other things. But let me just read this off because the American Bar actually has a whole part about the racism of the patent process and its history and how when the Patent Act was signed in April of 1790, we weren't people then, right? What they highlight are a set of Black people that were excluded from the legal process, but whose inventions changed this country and the world. And I'll just read this. At the turn of the 19th century, a Kentucky slave invented the hemp break. In about 1800, a Massachusetts slave named Ebar invented a method of making brooms out of corn stalks. In about 1825, an Alabama slave named Hezekiah invented a machine for cleaning cotton. In 1831, a Charleston, South Carolina slave named Anthony Weston invented an improvement on a threshing machine invented by W.T. Cato. And in 1839, a North Carolina slave named Stephen Slade invented a method of curing tobacco that enabled the creation of the modern cigarette. And I just think about like, we are at a moment where if people want to talk about the National Inventors Hall of Fame or patent, they should be granting historical patents to all these people and their families. We should be enrolling 100, 200 people at a time to make up for all the people that were historically excluded. I was both proud of these two women and like, shout out because y'all did it. And a reminder that you exist in a legacy of people who invented far more over time than all these other people and they have not been recognized. DeRay, I went down a similar path and I was like, only two in 50 years? That's all you could find? Well, what other Black women have invented things? And so I found people like um, Marie Van Britten Brown, who was a nurse who invented the earliest version of a home security system because she didn't feel safe in her neighborhood. And she hooked up her TV to see what was going on outside. A two-way microphone literally just jury-rigged this and was the first person to invent a home security system or Alice Parker who patented the use of natural gas to keep homes warm. There's Dr. Shirley Jackson who is a titan in the telecommunications industry. She did touchtone phones. Um, she laid the foundation for the modern day fax machine and the fiber optic cables that we use for long distance. Um, Valerie Thomas, who is a physicist who invented the technology to make 3D movies. You know, black women been all over this country inventing all kinds of things. And the simple fact that they could only find two is abysmal. And so I figured I'd help them find a few more. My guess is there are loads more where that came from. And so let's start. I mean, my question is, can we start lobbying 
the National Inventors Hall of Fame to A, be more inclusive, to B, be retroactive, um, and to C, think more broadly about how recommendations get made in terms of who gets into the Hall of Fame. One of my favorite stories that my mother would tell about um, her and my late uncle was uh, she was coming from school. My uncle was older than my mother, so he was already home because high school got out a little bit sooner. And she was coming home from school in Brooklyn, um, New York, Bed-Stuy, Bainbridge. And she <laughs> and she comes in, and my uncle, who is a Sagittarius man who does not show a lot of emotion even in teenage years was elated like it was Christmas Day and he was like Enid come look come look come look Enid is my mother's name Enid come look come look come look and she goes to look and once she goes closer to the television to go see what was the excitement about after coming home from school she sees black people on television and then all she hears is my uncle's voice say there's black folks on television there's black folks on television and them watching Soul Train for the first time it's now the 50th anniversary of Soul Train And what's interesting about that story to me is when my mother told me that story, I was like, oh, well, that couldn't have actually, and I wouldn't say this to my mother because I love my mother not being mad at me more than I love being right. (laughs) But I was like, that might not have been the first time you saw black people on television. That might not actually be the actual truth. But what I understood in that moment was that black people were kind of um, reaching for, trying to reach past an existential moment. So not just looking at themselves and saying, are we real? Do we exist? Are we all these existential things? But, oh, we're beautiful. We're funky. We're we're um, sultry. We're experimental. Kind of getting past that, I'm a human being, right? So Soul Train for my mother and for my uncle in that moment was the opposite of the men with the I am a man sign on. It was, oh, we've already established that. Now I'm a soul man. I'm a funky man, you know? And what's even more interesting, what I read in the article that really got me, this is Cornelius talking to Sanders, um, on Soul Train, even the commercials were super black because Johnson Products was sponsoring the show. There's this one ad that really stands out for me. It's for Afrosheen, this black hair product. And in the ad, the ghost of Frederick Douglass is talking about the way hairstyles are a sign of respectability. It's wild. I think about the current moment, and I think sometimes... (laughs) I think sometimes I think about how everything... It's happening now and how sometimes we're so, um, like Toni Morrison says, we're so concerned with the white gaze and we're creating things with white people in mind and you kind of can taste it, even if it's good. I like some blackish episodes. I like some episodes of um, certain shows. But when I really sit down and think about Soul Train and I think about Johnson & Johnson, I'm like, oh, this was one of the times where black people were making a black thing for black people trying to get black money. And I think there's something to that because oftentimes there might be black people trying to make a black thing but have to also compromised so they can also get white money and all the other types of money that that are out there. But I think there was something so rich about it being able to be thoroughly black. And I think the fact that it was the longest television show that was on air. But you can watch um, everybody from Shamar Moore to Don Cornelius. And it's interesting to just see this living, breathing, moving encyclopedia of Black culture. Um, One of my favorite artists that I discovered, Sylvia Robinson, she had a hit song called Pillow Talk in the 70s and a fantastic album by the same name. And she was performing there um, in a, 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 a vinyl purple outfit. And I was just so fascinated by this sultry woman who was covered from head to toe in purple, nothing showing in a, in a, in a vinyl turban, talking about pillow talk and just being so 
so sultry and I went to go look her up and um, turns out that she founded Sugar Hill Records which was the first hip hop label this predates Def Jam and she also was the, the composer of the first rap record Rapper's Delight she had the idea when she saw people on the street rapping she had the idea to take them 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 orchestrate it together, compose it, and make a song. And she thought it would, it would it was going to be something. And I think how amazing it is that there is a show that shows these people in their excellence, in their um, highest performance, and then performing for people who look like them. You know, I think so many times when I think about um, Nina Simone and how Carnegie Hall was a wish for her and all, and all these other kind of like white institutions were wishes for black people. I think there's something really special to see Barry White perform for other young black people in love. And it fills me with pride that that's a part of our legacy. And it makes me um, hope that there's a challenge to black creators and artists now to maybe um, create, at least in your imagination, like you're creating for black dollars and black imaginations and for black creativity. Because I would love for, and and I still think there's a moment where even in 2021, there could be a black kid who comes home who gets excited that they see black people on television. But because it's me, there's a different type of blackness maybe being represented, and there's a different type of black story being represented. And I think every generation should hope to have that moment that my mom and my uncle shared. And I think that's what we should hold deep, specifically now that we're able to compromise our art and work so much. Thanks for bringing this to the pod, Miles. This was very nostalgic for me. One of the things that I loved about the article that you shared is... Um, it, there's a, a line in the article that says, there wasn't a big message on top of Soul Train. There was no plot. The only point the show was trying to prove was that black joy is good TV and that really anyone would love to watch really cool people dance to good songs. And like, that's it, right? Like, that's the whole thing. And I, I think um, at a time where, you know, if you think about the turmoil that was happening post-civil rights in the early 70s. Don Cornelius was actually a genius to think about how to capture Black joy, put it in a bottle, and make it acceptable to mainstream America on television. Yes, it was for us, but it was on a regular old television platform that everybody could watch. And so it invited people in at a time where everybody was listening to Motown and to lots of Black music. It invited people into Black culture in really interesting ways. Um, There was a Netflix documentary out last year or so called American Soul, which is the story of Don Cornelius and how he started Soul Train. And he really is, he was a visionary. He wasn't just the smooth host. Like he was an architect who had a vision for something amazing on TV and, and nothing like it has existed since, right? So this dude was a pioneer. He literally, there is no black celebrity performer, singer, whatever you call it, singer. There's no black singer um, who, who was not on Soul Train, right? That was the platform. And American Bandstand was for white people and Soul Train was for us. And, you know, in my house, we got up on Saturdays and we cleaned the house and Soul Train was on the TV while we were cleaning. And so, you know, you, I, I, I always wondered, I kept saying, where are their coats? Because I grew up in New York, right? And I was like, where's their coats? <laughs> that was my question. And I was like, I love to dance them, but where do they put their coats? And my mother was like, it's LA. And I was like, what does that have to do with anything? Because I didn't understand diff- climate differences at the time. But 
Soul Train was, for us, the soundtrack to our cleaning every Saturday morning. It was a cultural institution for us, and every singer that I love showed up there at some time or another. So, Miles, this was a great walk down memory lane. Um, and a reminder that Black Joy is sellable. Black Joy is, I mean, on TV, we sell Black pain like nobody's business, right? And I think what Don Cornelius showed us is Black Joy is equally as marketable. Insubstantial. I think that's the thing, too. I think if you don't have a DL husband with the mother on crack who also is the jail and somebody's going to a protest then it's just not a substantial thing <laughs> and it's still really substantial because i really when i think about soul train it is a black community heirloom because i think about my mother having that moment and then my sister having a moment with soul train that has nothing to do <laughs> the music was totally different by the time my sister's 10 years older than me i'm 30 my sister's and my mother's in her um in her early 60s so these are all different generations and i have my own memories with soul train growing up in the um, 90s i was born in 1991 so it really is acting as a black communal heirloom that we all have our own personal moments with it reminds me of like a grandmother's quilt and i think that's really beautiful and that's substantial too and that is powerful and that is just as revolutionary as a tear our laughs are just as revolutionary if not more than our tears and our screams and i think soul train is a testament to that Go ahead, our laughs are. I will say, um, I didn't know that Don Cornelius paid for the pilot was $400 out of his own pocket uh, that he had from a road show that he had created with local high schools and that he owned the show, that it was his show, that uh, I think it was like some famous performer asked him, like, who's behind this? And he was like, me. And they were like, no, 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 but who's back? And he was like, me. And that is just so beautiful. Like, we hadn't seen that. And, you know, he was quoted as saying that Soul Train was developed as a radio show on television. It was a radio show, he says, in 1995 in the New York Times, he goes, it was the radio show that I always wanted and never had. I selected the music and still do by simply seeing what had chart success. And it, it this was funny for me, and this is so simple and so basic, but, like, the Soul Train line, it feels like it's been around forever. And it was like, that was, like, they made that up. That is, like, that is the show. And I, like, I don't know why. I'm like, wow, that is, like, in your language, Miles, an heirloom, you know, the beautiful thing about these rituals and traditions is that they feel timeless. Mm -hmm. And that is one that just feels, like, I can't imagine that there were a group of black people where, like, they didn't line up and dance like that. Like, Listen. that that feels so present. Listen, and then you really sit and think about it. And mind you, I, I get heady about stuff like this, but I think it's necessary. I'm like, so what would Tyler Perry do for 15 minutes in most of his movies if he couldn't do 15 minutes of the Soul Train line? That is the bridge between so many scenes. <laughs> it's important in these moments of joy, even in these dramas, you know things are going to be okay once you, for whatever reason, hear Marvin Gaye, gotta give it up, and everybody's making a Soul Train line, and everybody's coming down. You're like, okay, even though Big Mama going, and Pookie and them are still fighting, somehow, you know, so-and-so shop slash restaurant slash job is going to be safe because if they're dancing the Soul Train line, we know it's all going to be all right. And I think that's beautiful, and I think it's ancestral, and it does remind me of West African traditions of us getting together and dancing together and sweating together and looking at the moon together. And I think that those ideas and energies do live on and they manifest. And I think Soul Train, it's 
called soul train is a modernization of a soul that is very ancient but train is the modernization of it and i think it's just i love it i have the quest love book that he made that just has the documentation of it and i love that we can reflect on it um and it's still really relevant 50 years and there's nothing competing with it in this current moment to me at all so my news is obviously i deal with criminal justice in my day-to-day and i'm rarely shocked and then I came across this and I was actually shocked. I was like, who knew that this was still a thing? So the headline is, judges can't ignore jury verdicts in deciding sentencing New Jersey's top court rules. And I'm like, what you mean? I thought the whole point of being found not guilty was that that wasn't used against you. I was wrong. Last Thursday, in a unanimous decision from the New Jersey Supreme Court, they ruled that judges cannot consider conduct that defendants were acquitted of in deciding how to sentence them. What? I didn't even know that was a thing. You Like, I literally, it was, I had to read it over and over because I didn't know that you could be found not guilty of something and the judge could ignore, essentially, the not guilty finding and use that as a way to penalize you. So this comes up because there were two defendants who were in unrelated cases that combined three people were left dead and one was injured in 2012. And in both of the cases, they were acquitted of the most serious charges, but they were convicted of lesser charges. And um, they highlight that the Superior Court judge considered the more serious offenses in deciding to sentence one of the people to 20 years in prison and another person to 60 years in prison. What the Supreme Court wrote is that a judge cannot, quote, act as a 13th juror and make up like what they want to do. And it, it makes total sense. But it was really it was one of those things that like it made me appreciate even more how there are all these micro decisions that lead to people's lives being changed fundamentally. They're like, you could win the case. You could get acquitted of the worst crime and still have that be used against you. I mean, it just really, it truly blew my mind. And I wanted to bring it here because I literally didn't know this was a thing. I didn't know that this is still an issue in states across the country uh, and that I think we might even organize on this at Campaign Zero side just because it, it literally I need to learn more about how it's playing out in the other states. But it just blew my mind. I did not know this was a legal possibility um, at all. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Angela. go on a journey to the pier by the sea. Take a small vacation, dance under sun-soaked trees. Hurry close, take me far to where I want to be. Just pick any day, feel it all drift away. Transport your lives a day with the fresh scent of clay. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. (laughs) 
Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Valerie Jarrett is a former member of the Obama administration who is now a board member with Civic Nation. Civic Nation's Made to Serve initiative is trying to help increase vaccination access and awareness in American communities that are being hit the hardest. Here is our conversation. I haven't talked to Valerie in a long time. It's good to catch up. Good to learn about the new initiative. Let's go. Valerie, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. You are welcome. It's always my pleasure to come on. Now, we obviously met a long time ago uh, when you were in the Obama administration and I was uh, in the street in the protests. And so much has seemed to change since then. And in some ways, so much sort of feels like it is just the same. But one of the things that's different for you is that you're now on the board of Civic Nation, uh, which is an organization that I did not know as much about, which is why I'm happy that you could come to talk to us about it. So what is one of your newest projects? Well, Civic Nation is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization designed to build a grassroots network of support to tackle the issues of today, from gender equity to ending sexual assault on college campuses to encouraging people to vote through When We All Vote. Uh, and our latest initiative is called Made to Save. And Made to Save is a national grassroots effort to ensure communities that are hardest hit by this COVID-19 pandemic have the information that they need to get vaccinated and access to the vaccines uh, in a timely way. And we've been working very closely with the Biden administration since the vaccine was first made available, because, as you know, many of the challenges of the COVID-19 simply lay bare disparities that have existed, particularly in poor and communities of color, for a very long time. And we want to make sure that we reach those folks and encourage them to get the vaccine because the health outcomes are worse depending upon your economic status and your race. And we also want to make sure that communities that have had a hard time getting access to healthcare in general have access to this vaccine. What have you learned? You know, I feel like the vaccine conversation has, has come a long way. It was like, you know, is there going to be a vaccine? And then it was like, there is a vaccine. And then it was, you know, there are three types of vaccines. And now it's like there's a vaccine for kids coming what have you sort of learned about doing the vaccine access work over the sort of course of the lifespan of the vaccine so far? Uh, it's such a good question. I think one of the primary lessons that we've learned, which isn't a surprise because we found it around voting and around other issues as well, people are influenced by people they trust. And that person doesn't have to be, you know, a notable public figure like the president of the United States. It could be the pastor of your church. It could be your cousin. It could be your coworker or your boss. And so part of what we're trying to do is to find those influencers on a grassroots level on the ground to persuade people one person at a time. And it's the exact same strategy we use to encourage people to turn out and register to vote, not just in a presidential election, but in every election. And so we're taking advantage of this grassroots network we have around the country and our relationship with the Biden administration that's working hand in glove with us to get the word out. And obviously, more and more people are getting vaccinated every day. 
but we are still in the midst of a pandemic, and it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And so how to reach them, persuade them, and make sure that we make it easy for them uh, to get the vaccine. So, for example, we've been encouraging employers to give paid time off so people can leave work and go get vaccinated. Large employers, we've been encouraging those who are administering the vaccines to make them available on site. Early, when the vaccine was first made available here in Chicago, I went with Roz Brewer, who's the new CEO of Walgreens Boots Alliance, and I serve on their board. We went to a black church on the west side of Chicago, and the pastor opened up his dining hall in the church and encouraged everybody in the church to come get vaccinated on a Saturday. And then we brought the pharmacists who work for Walgreens and live and work in the surrounding community to volunteer and come in and vaccinate people in the church. Well, you can imagine how much more comfortable it was for people to get vaccinated among their fellow worshipers with their pastor encouraging them right there on site to do it. So how do we do that all around the country and take it to scale is one of the objectives of Made to Safe. There we go. And, and is there still a racial disparity with regard to who is being vaccinated or who who maybe has access to the vaccine or who's choosing to get vaccinated? Sure. We, we didn't overcome the disparities overnight. These are systemic disparities that have existed for a very long time. It's not that there are not hurdles, but we are knocking down those hurdles one hurdle at a time and trying to get the word out, which is part of why I wanted to come on your podcast so that people appreciate the fact that this vaccine is safe, it is approved, uh, the trial period is over, it's not an emergency approval, it now has approval. We now have the booster shot for Pfizer being approved. So the scientists, they have done their job. And now it's up to each of us to do our job and recognize, you know, you hear people who are saying, you know, it's their freedom to not get vaccinated. First of all, we require all kinds of vaccines for kids to go to school in this country. And there was never such a upheaval about that before. So it's not like vaccine requirements are new. But look, you don't get to drive 100 miles down a freeway just because you feel like it. We have all kinds of laws that are designed to keep our society healthy. And this is not about individual choice. This is about what is good and healthy for our country. And individual decisions in this case, as we know, impact other people. And look, we have children who are going to school who are too young to be vaccinated. Well, if their teachers aren't vaccinated, they can catch it and then take it home to their parents or their grandparents. All of this we know from the science. And we also know that health comes, particularly for black people who get the COVID-19, are far worse in terms of the severity of the illness and death. So there is already a health disparity, sometimes because of other conditions that already exist. And so knowing that, I think we have a special responsibility to say, we can't afford to get this. And if we're vaccinated, even if we're one of those rare breakthrough cases, we're not going to die from it in all likelihood. And so let's just take care of ourselves and our loved ones and get this done and stop looking at this through a political lens. And the other part of it, DeRay, I think is a big responsibility to educate people. There's a reluctance on behalf of some black people who say, well, Tuskegee. And, you know, they have heard that there's something that happened in Tuskegee. Well, Tuskegee was about treatment being withheld, not treatment that was available. And so in this case, the FDA has approved this drug as safe, this vaccine as safe. And so let's all just decide to take it. And as more and more employers are mandating it, 
people are running the risk of losing their jobs if they don't get vaccinated. We just saw United announce that they're going to be firing some people who haven't been vaccinated. Don't be in that category. Get vaccinated. What do you say to the people who are like, you know what? Enough people are vaccinated now that I'm fine, right? That herd immunity. They're like, I'm good. I don't need it because everybody else has it. What do you say to those people? Don't make stuff up. You don't know what you're talking about. The (laughs) scientists have said we have not reached herd immunity yet. So, no, you're wrong. I encourage those people who think we've reached herd immunity to look at the math that's published every day about the number of people who are dying. A couple thousand people every day in our country are dying, not to mention the many more who are being hospitalized. And then it isn't just the people who are being hospitalized and the people that they have exposed, but there are many examples, particularly in parts of our country, D-Ray, that are underserved by hospitals to begin with, where the hospitals are now inundated. So you are in a car accident and you show up in an emergency room and they can't treat you because their emergency room is full of COVID patients. Or you need an important cancer treatment or a surgery and you can't have that because our system is swamped. And so herd immunity will be reached when our hospitals are not full up and at capacity and when thousands of people are no longer dying from this virus. And so I encourage people, you know, my answers start out a little flip about it, but it's so serious. You can't just go on the internet and hear a crazy conspiracy theory or a made up medical theory and believe it. You have to do your homework and look at reliable sources from people who you know have the science at their fingertips, not people who are just making up stuff. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to sort of convince people in their lives or talk to people in their lives and address misinformation. Is there some advice that you can give? Yeah, I say first listen and find out why they're hesitant and then try to address their specific concern. Healthcare is a very personal issue. So you've got to meet people where they are and recognize that you're not trying to lecture them. You're not trying to impose your will upon them. You're trying to educate them with information so that they can make an informed decision. And when people have the information and they are making an informed decision, they make the right decision. And so you got to give people credit for being able to come to the conclusion on their own once you give them the information that they need. And don't give up. I mean, again, it's just like voting. I know there are a lot of people who I tried to convince to go out and vote. The first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, they said, okay, okay, I'm going to go register to vote. So this is a work in progress where you have to give people reinforcement over time. You can't just say, because I I ask you one time, that people are going to go out and do it if they truly are hesitant. You've got to stay on them. And I have heard just countless cases of people who finally go, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to go do it now. So don't underestimate the influence you can have on the lives of people who care about you and care about how you view them, uh, and who trust you. And so take that confidence that they have in you and help them make the right decision. And I wanted to zoom out a little bit. You spent so much time uh, in the White House. I mean, you were there the whole time and a senior ranking member of the administration. Is there a party that misses sort of government work? Do you think that you'll go back to government work? Is there, I mean, you still know so many people, so... I have to imagine that your ability to influence systems is still uh, strong, but it, it seems like not to be the same as being in, in the building every day. Well, this is what I actually believe. Having spent half my career in the private sector and half in the public sector, 
I do believe that the most important office, and President Obama said this, his last speech he gave when he was still in office, the most important office is the office of citizen. And I have seen, as I know you have too, so many just like ordinary people do extraordinary things. And in this chapter of my life right now, I'm president of the Obama Foundation. We just broke ground yesterday in Chicago. Uh, the Obama Center woo, 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 woo. is going to, I know, exactly. It was a glorious day. That's the only word I could use to describe sitting there and seeing both President and Mrs. Obama on the south side of Chicago. And I think his phrase that he used, D-Ray, was, this community is where nearly every important thing in my life started. He arrived in Chicago, came off the Skyway, right by Jackson Park. His wife was born in the community, raised there. They married there, raised their children there, had their first kiss there, a stone's throw away. It is so important for them to be giving back. And the purpose is not to admire the past. It will show the shoulders upon whom the Obamas stood, the people who paved the way in order for his presidency to be possible. It will, of course, the museum will tell the story of his presidency. But the point is for people to leave not just inspired, but empowered to go back into their own communities and make a difference. And the programs that they are launching, have launched, such as My Brother's Keeper, obviously, that you are very familiar with trying to improve the trajectory of the lives of boys and young men of color, the work we did last summer around policing and, and reducing the use of force in communities, our Girls Global um, Alliance, that is Opportunity Alliance, that is designed to help girls, not just in the United States, but around the world, stay in school. Uh, the fellows programs we have in Asia and Europe and Africa, all of this delay is President Obama's desire to help the next generation have the tools that they need to go out and be change agents. And so between sharing the Board of Civic Nation that has the programs I just described to you earlier and the Obama Foundation, I feel like I can be a partner from outside of government working hand in glove with local, state, and federal government. Just yesterday, we had both the mayor and the governor at the groundbreaking because they are providing important resources to make the Obama Center possible as well. So a long way of answering your question is to say, um, I think you can be impactful both inside and outside of government. And right now, I'm enjoying what I'm doing on the outside. Boom. Now, uh, one of the last questions is, what advice do you have for people? I asked you this years ago. What advice do you have for people who are like, you know what, I did all the things. I convinced my cousin, my mom, my sister to get vaccinated. I voted. You know, I showed up at the protest and the world really feels the exact same. What do you say to those people? You have to take the long view. When the folks in Montgomery decided that they were not going to ride those buses, it was over a year of boycotts before change happened. When the women in the suffrage movement were petitioning for universal suffrage back in 1866, it wasn't until 1919 that a resolution was entered into Congress in 1920 before Congress passed the amendment giving white women the right to vote. And it wasn't until 65 that black women got the right to vote. But the point is, is that the people, those foot soldiers who were out there pushing for change, going against the stranglehold of status quo, that their work matters and that it takes time. And that each person who has a baton has a responsibility to run with it as hard as they can. You may not live to see the change that you dreamed of, but that change won't happen but for your hard work. 
And I think that's hard, particularly for young people who are so idealistic and want to see change happen overnight to realize, you know, in our country, democracies are messy. And you take three steps forward and two steps back and two steps forward and five steps sideways. But where change really happens is where over a sustained period of time, we put pressure and that we do not grow weary. And if you think about the folks who walked across that Edmund Pettus Bridge, they knew they were going to get hurt. They knew what was waiting for them, and they did it anyway. And so we stand on their shoulders, which was part of the speech that President Obama gave at the 50th anniversary of Selma, the march, and will be embossed on the Obama Center building uh, here in Chicago. It is a glorious responsibility we have to try to make the world better, and we do our part. And so I say to those who say this is so incredibly frustrating and hard and I, you know, I feel like, if anything, maybe we're slipping backwards. Well, you just can't give up. Because if we give up, then we will certainly slip backwards. That's for sure. And I also think I take heart, D-Ray, in this next generation of young people. And I put you and the, and the generation coming after you front and center is, is that you have strong legs. And you all have technology at your fingertips. You have organizational skills. You all are smarter and brighter than my generation was, and we have a lot riding on your shoulders. You stand on strong, broad shoulders, but you also have incredible potential. And so I want people to take care of themselves and recognize the thunderbolt doesn't happen without a lot of hard work leading up to it. And if you're lucky, you see the thunderbolt. Uh, but it won't happen without you. Boom. Can you tell people what the website is, where they can go to get involved with Civic Nation or uh, Made to Save? CivicNation.org or MadeToSave.org. And you can find out how to volunteer, how to get up to speed on where you can get vaccinated in your community, the organizations that are partnering with us on this work. This is something everyone can do. Everyone can help people register to vote. Everyone can work on gender equity. Everyone can work on trying to create a fairer system. And I also encourage, of course, people to go to the ObamaFoundation.org as well if you're interested in, in the initiatives that we have underway over there, too. But sitting by idly and letting life happen to you and admiring the problem, that's not how change happens. Roll up your sleeves and get in it. Feel empowered to know that your voice matters. That's what you've done, D-Ray. That's what you're doing right now. And if you need a break and go and, like, get your mind right, great. Do that, but then get back in the game. Cool. Well, Valerie, always a pleasure to have you. We'll always consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. All right, dear. You stay healthy, stay well, take care of yourself. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, 